0: Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership
1: into new business. Well, Jay, it's good to be back on the Thought Leadership Project podcast after a one-week hiatus.
0: Yeah, I missed you, Tom. It was, uh, it was tough doing a solo episode. But, uh, but uh you know, we got through it and uh, I'm glad you're back.
1: Yeah. Well, it's good to be back. For the listeners who may have missed it last week, I was on vacation in an undisclosed location, as you put it, Jay. And so I was gone and, and you flight solo. And I just, it's probably worth pointing out that we've had exactly zero complaints about the fact that I wasn't there. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I haven't sent you all the fan mail I've been receiving.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll see how this goes, and who knows, we may have just one host next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, But it. It. Was, it was a good, no, you did a great job, it was a good, good topic. Actually, some of the questions, you posed three significant questions, but one of which kind of inspired today's topic, which is we're going to look at thought leadership as we always do, but we're, what I thought might be interesting to do is to focus on atypical forms of thought leadership to get people thinking beyond um, what they might typically consider to be thought leadership marketing and just to maybe spread your wings a little bit and um, we'll get into some what some of those are Um, but I think what we need to encourage our listeners and our clients to do is to think differently and more creatively as their thought leadership marketing programs mature. Um, you know, we're going to start with basics and we'll, we'll go there in a minute. But I think in the modern landscape, as we've pointed out a lot, that it's, it's not enough anymore to just do written thought leadership.
0: Yeah, that's right, Tom. I mean, there's multiple reasons for that. As you mentioned, we'll get, get into those in today's episode, but I mean, at a, at a high level, people prefer different, you know, different forms of content. Uh, you know, when we think, as we think, when we think of thought leadership, first thing that jumps in mind for most people is, you know, blog posts and articles. And that's just not, that's, you know, effective forms of thought leadership content, but it's not the preferred format for, for many people. Different people learn differently. Different people have different preferences. Um, so uh, you, you got to reach people where they are. Um, so it's important to be thinking about these different forms of, of thought leadership that we'll be talking about today.
1: Right. And you mentioned articles and blog posts, and you could even put maybe, you know, podcasting as a new form of law, thought leadership. And these are all somewhat long form and are They rely a lot on either the written or the spoken word. And, you know, again, nothing wrong with those. And I would not encourage anyone to not at least start there. If I've any client, I would imagine, I guess I shouldn't speak universally, but I can't imagine starting a client relationship on a thought leadership campaign and not starting with the foundation, which is the written word, because A, it allows you to um, express your thoughts in long form, so completely um, to articulate complex ideas at length, um, but it's also the most discoverable form of, of of thought leadership in the fact that if someone's out searching, they're searching using contextual keyword phrases that will naturally appear in your writing. So we're not advocating that everyone give up on writing by any stretch. In fact, I think that's the foundation. It's the workhorse. But once you've kind of gotten into a into a, a mode where you're able to trim that content out on a regular basis, at that point, don't you agree, Jay, that maybe that's the point to start thinking about what else is out there?
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think at the, at the core of it is the fact that when, when it comes to thought leadership marketing, what you're really trying to do is market ideas um, and insights. And so, you know, what you're trying to do is essentially, you know, we use the metaphor of the funnel sometimes when we're talking about marketing and sales. And at the bottom of that funnel is your big idea. And, and above that big idea, you need to find ways to kind of funnel people down so they really actually discover your idea and are able to digest it. And 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 consider it and then consider you as a potential um, solutions provider to help put that idea into action but you know it's not just a single piece of content that gets them to that idea it oftentimes is many different forms of content um published in different places so that you're you're again you're funneling someone towards uh your ultimate uh, thought leadership idea
1: yep and you know at the top of that funnel at least the typical funnel that i think of Uh, related to sales, I think also applies to thought leadership marketing is there's the first hurdle that you need to overcome is to get somebody from unaware of you or your content or your expertise and get them to be aware. And as we've illustrated and discussed many times on this podcast, it becomes increasingly difficult with the, you know, bombardment of information that the typical person is, you know, prone to if they're online and social media, you just get tons of stuff thrown at you. Um, So sticking out is key. And sometimes you don't have more than five to 10 seconds to capture someone's attention. So 1200 words or a half hour podcast, isn't going to get somebody's attention, but maybe we'll start with the first, um, the first form of atypical thought leadership marketing content in um, that isn't and doesn't rely on the written word. And um, that's the form of an infographic. So an infographic is, not particularly new but it seems like in the past infographics were approached from the standpoint of we need an infographic so what should we do and i think what we should instead be thinking in terms of is i have a complex idea and yes i can write on it for 1200 words um, but how do i get somebody invested in my complex idea in 15 or 20 seconds so that they're willing to either read my article or, you know, listen to and subscribe to a podcast. So what is the value? you got a ton of experience in this. What, In your experience, what have you seen has been the value of using some sort of infographic or illustration to distill the complex concepts you might otherwise be writing about, um, you know, by visualizing data or visualizing you know, complexity? Well, to your
0: point, Tom, it, the number one reason would be uh, to, to recognize that not everyone has Um, the interest or the capacity to consume what otherwise might be that long-form article. Um, So an infographic, in my opinion, is often a great companion piece to written content. Um, It's it's for purposes, and for anyone that isn't familiar with what we're talking about when we talk about an infographic, it's basically a designed piece that takes a series of related ideas and reduces them down into a visual, graphic, form uh, complemented by typically complemented by you know short summaries of the ideas or topics that the graphics relate to so we've all seen these they're oftentimes um you know again uh they're used more often nowadays in b2b marketing and legal marketing but um they're across the internet in terms of um, different forms of content marketing but yeah that it, it's a great way to distill complexity down into something much more simple and digestible um you know as as lawyers we can. We can be afflicted by what's called the curse of knowledge, where um, oftentimes we we write or we create content um, in the belief that other people share a similar level of expertise about the topics we're writing about that we do, um, and that's that's just not the case, right? Most um, other than maybe at the top echelon of buyers of legal services, you, most most consumers of legal services, I'd say the overwhelming majority are those who are relatively unsophisticated about legal topics, right? Um, They don't know the ins and outs of statutes, regulations, case law, et cetera. They certainly don't know the jargon that we use in the legal industry um and and, but shouldn't use in many cases and so for them uh to again pour through a fairly complex blog post might not have all that much impact but if we can reduce that complexity down into a series of graphics and short simple statements then it gives people uh the gist of what you want them to know um so that they can get a sense of you know again the the value you're trying to deliver the Expertise that you have and what they need to know about, um, you know, the service offering that you provide. So um, there's that's that's one big reason, distilling complexity into simplicity. Um, another is that infographics just perform really well in sort of the marketplace of ideas on social media, um, where other people are posting content. You know, there's all these statistics out there, and it's always uh, it's always wise to take them with a bit of a grain of salt. But consistently, you'll see. Um, when, when talking about statistics related to visual content, visual storytelling. Um, infographics are things that um, are, are consistently perceived as much more shareable than other forms of content. So if you're trying to create uh, something that spreads among your network, an infographic is a great way to start. You know, I oftentimes see statistics saying that infographics are three to five times more shareable than written content, for example. And I don't know how accurate that is, but I do get the sense that that sort of visual content is more shareable than just a garden variety blog post. Um, so so that's, I think, another big reason. And then, and then the other reasons that kind of overlay a lot of what we're talking about today as we're talking about visual storytelling as a form of, of thought leadership marketing is that Visuals in in any of these forums we're gonna talk about are just what we call sticky, right? They stick with you, they grab your attention. Um, There is research out there that suggests that people remember 10% of what they hear, 20% of what they read, but 80% of what they see. So if you want people to not only view your content, but remember what you have to say, translating that into visual content in the form of an infographic is a great way to make that stick. So I think those are a few Few areas, Tom. I don't know if you had anything else to add to that.
1: Yeah, that last point was one I was going to make for sure. Is the data that just shows you not only how deeper the recall is of the content, but how that is deeper it's longer lasting for the consumer. So um, definitely want to mix those types of visual um, art forms into your your data. I'm sorry, into your content plan. Um, And then the only other one that I would add, and you started to touch on it, was if if you're sharing content on social media, the algorithms of social media these days, whether it's Facebook or LinkedIn, you know, they're all designed to increase time on site and that's t- not time on your site. It's time on their site. So what they're doing is they're baking into the way that they are sharing the content that you're posting with and in, in how they share that with the network that you're assuming everyone's going to see the content that you, that you distribute, but they don't. And in, in one of the things that they tend to maybe suppress is links away from say LinkedIn. So if you're teasing a a blog post say that lives on your website, you're providing a link to it. Well, LinkedIn might be less liable to serve that piece of content up to your network than it might a photo, in which case somebody can consume the content right there on LinkedIn and not have to leave the site. They could consume it and again, to your point, it's gonna be a quicker recall, quicker distillation of the complexity so they can spend 10 seconds reviewing it and that impact you're making is you know incredibly deep and, and long lasting, like I suggested, but it's it's just more likely to be served up by Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter because it's not a link away from the site. So there's there's all sorts of reasons to kind of think through your 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 media strategy and make sure that it's it's mixing art forms and not just relying on links to text.
0: Yeah, and last point on this, uh, consider embedding uh, even if it's a, a small infographic into the blog post content that you're writing. Uh, people scan, as we all know, people scan content when they're, unless they're really dedicated and invested in reading every aspect of your blog post. Um, I think I think it's around 20, people consume about 20% of an actual article, they sort of scan through it and they're looking for the punchline. Um, one way to deliver that punchline in a way that a land and stick is embedding a short small graphic into that post that kind of summarizes the key points of the article Um, we oftentimes do this with our clients where we'll work with them collaborate with them on writing an article and then provide them with a graphic to supplement that with that's both embedded within the blog post and then is also shareable on linkedin and other social platforms so so again it's not this is not a binary thing it's not an either or it's kind of a both right uh use certainly continue to write content but think about ways to supplement that with visuals through the creation of an infographic. So, okay, Tom, um, I think that's enough on infographics. Let's turn to the next topic, um, and this one is is obviously of uh, a high level of interest among our audience um, is video content. And I know um, video content performs very well uh, across the internet. Um, so, what are some advantages that video has over written articles and other forms of thought leadership content Um, why why should law firms and lawyers be thinking about producing video content
1: Uh, well for one I think it goes back to what you alluded to earlier which is the the preference of the user so the um, watching a video is a much more passive activity than reading an article and if you are about to click on a video that says it lasts a minute and 20 seconds well you know right away what your commitment in time is so um, some people will want to read beyond the 20%. Some people will run, want to read 80 to 90 to 100% of your content. And of course, the further down the funnel they go, the more invested they are in reading your content. But at the top of the funnel, they're looking to invest a bare minimum to at least get the idea and get some takeaways. So that in an, in each step along the way, you as the content producer is your sort of banking you know, compounding interest on the, on behalf of the, the content consumer. So, you know, an infographic might take 10 to 30 seconds to consume. Now, a little bit further down the funnel, a minute, a two-minute video might be something that is well worth somebody's time. And again, they don't have to invest a ton of effort. They don't have to stop what they're doing. They don't have to carve out a half hour on a commute. It's, it's, it's pretty low barrier to entry. So I would say for one, we know that the user in the data show that, video is among, if not the most consumed forms of content online. So you need to get, you, as you said earlier, go where the eyeballs are. The eyeballs are certainly on video. And then the other thing is it's just a, it's a more dynamic uh, form of media that allows you to not only express yourself more deeply because you're, you know, if, if it's a talking head video, say you're showing yourself, you're showing your personality, you're showing more depth in terms of, uh, getting the user to understand who you are and maybe the personality behind the expertise. And that's really important in terms of fostering trust and nurturing you know, some rapport because those things simply can't be done through the written word. So you're giving people content and ideas in a manner in which they are more probably likely to consume them. And then you're doing it in a much more rich way um, uh, much more expressive and authentic expression of your personal brand in the meantime.
0: Yeah, and, and one thing I'd add is just that, you know, I think lawyers, like like most of us, uh, there's a there's a hesitancy to produce video content. One, because I think it's perceived as it's very expensive to produce, more expensive than other forms of, of thought leadership content. And the second is, who, who among us wants to appear on camera? Not many of us, right? <laughs> Um, it's not something that's very comfortable or natural for for most people um, the The mistake I see out there is that uh, you know you've got two ends of this spectrum you've got the very sort of um, low cost cheap to produce video content. the other end of the spectrum is the super polished you know high production value um, video. I think both those extremes of the spectrum are actually the most effective uses of video. What you see though is this overwhelming amount of video content that's somewhere in the in sort of the mushy middle where you know it's it's a lawyer sitting at his or her desk um, sort of feeling uncomfortable maybe reading off a script and without a, a lot of thought to lighting and background but there's still some some professional production value to the videos and they just don't land all that well oftentimes they're too long they're just not interesting enough on that Sort of high polish end of the spectrum. You can do something pretty dynamic, and if you've got something really important to to promote, to share, to um, to uh, push out there into the marketplace of ideas, then you might want to think about doing that. That might be something like a high, you know, something for recruiting or um, the rollout of a new practice group or opening a new new office, a new release of a new brand to the marketplace those types of activities otherwise i think laura should think about being all the way out there all the way at the other end of the spectrum which is you know doing more frequent low production value video content whether it be recorded on your laptop at your desk or on your smartphone and posting that content to linkedin for example so there's room for you know polished video um and and that should be uh, something that you know firms think about but uh not to the exclusion of, of thinking that everything has to be perfect and not producing those sort of raw cuts, those, those quick 60-second takes, those you know, relatively unpolished videos while you might be like walking down the hall or, again, sitting at your desk, and you just want to provide a 60-second 60, 60 snippet on some important idea that you want to share with your network. Do that, too.
1: Yeah and I think just that people need to recalibrate their thinking um in terms of how expensive it is you just mentioned some very inexpensive um, forms of video marketing, and we're all walking around in in our pocket is a camera that far exceeds even the high end digital cameras from ten years ago. So it, it's accessible now, um, and there's some pretty user friendly tools. If not, you can find someone that you, that is really good at editing and telling a story. And it doesn't always have to be to your other point that might like, be an aversion for some. It doesn't have to be you on camera. You know, from the from the shoulders up just talking to the to the screen for 90 seconds, or you, there's ways to animate, use uh, text animations and motion graphics and all sorts of things to make it more visually interesting than say just a typical video. So um, again, whatever the aversion might be, I, I guess we're just encouraging listeners and clients to just sort of rethink those things because of how popular video is from a consumption standpoint. Yeah. What about, um, so moving on to another form of visual storytelling, and that is um, for the thought leader who is in front of a room, it might be performing a keynote address, or they might actually be doing a pitch to a prospective client, or they might be in some medium-sized room and they, they need to have a PowerPoint to deliver from. And it's so often is still the case, as we've had you know, Spencer X. Smith on, who's sort of an expert in public speaking. We're still seeing really dry, boring, bulletproof, text-laden PowerPoints that just put people to sleep. And it's a huge missed opportunity. So, you know, as you recall, our conversation with Spencer and just from your own expertise and experience, you know, what are the opportunities that people are missing if they're not considering that PowerPoint or that keynote presentation to be an expression of thought leadership and not just a backdrop?
0: Yeah, and I'll start with sharing a uh a study that I, I came across I think it was on Harvard Business Review at least it was summarized there um, I'm not I don't remember the exact methodology of the study but the the conclusion of it was that they they found that they had um, audiences rate speakers and and there was some there was some way w- in which they were able to determine whether you know I think maybe some of the speakers gave the same speech twice sometimes with slides sometimes without and in I think the majority of respondents found the the speech given without any uh slides to be more effective and I think one of the conclusions there was just the slides were so bad that they hampered rather than uh, helped the presentation so that 's what we 're really getting at here is I think an effective uh PowerPoint presentation is something that's that 's you know used in the context of a of some sort of public speaking, whether that be um, you know in a conference room or, or in front of a large audience is that a, a PowerPoint deck is a complement to a speech. It shouldn't be the thing that people are focusing on uh, more than they are the speaker. And what we often see in the legal industry, and I think everyone's experienced this, if they've ever uh, seen, seen a, a, you know, a series of presentations given by lawyers at a conference is the, is the powerpoint deck that is way too long has way too much text in it and overshadows the what the points that the speaker is trying to get across and in many times in many instances what happens is speakers use those powerpoints as a crutch they they transition into reading off of the slides rather than speaking to the audience and that's obviously a big mistake so what we like to advise when we're thinking you know working with clients on on powerpoint decks is a much more um, simplified approach, uh, relying heavily on visuals, whether those be photographic photographs or graphics that emphasize or complement the point the speaker's trying to make and assist in telling a story, kind of going through a presentation as you would kind of develop the arc of a story in, in any form um, and not having bullet points as part of your slides. So that what you're really doing is, when you're, you're speaking, of course, is trying to engage with the audience and speak to them. So you're you're just using those slides as uh, points of emphasis, as a means of, of assisting in your storytelling, and not as the sum and substance of what you're trying to get across. So um, think about that um, in terms of the, when you're you know working on your next deck. Um, Use far fewer slides than you think you should or need to. Uh, I'd say most slide decks have maybe two to three times the amount of slides that they should. And try with with your best effort to exclude any slides that have uh, more than a line or two of text on them. Certainly no, you know, five bullet point slides that just reiterate the points you're trying to make in your, in your talk. So that, ref- that requires a few things. It requires you to have sort of a cohesive theme or, or um, idea that runs throughout your presentation so that you can actually tell a story through your slides. And it also requires that you be really well versed and well prepared. In the subject matter that you're speaking on, which gets back to the you know the point that we make in almost every episode, which is have clear positioning, have a niche, have something that you're you have expertise in, and that's what you're producing thought leadership about, um, so that you don't need the crutch of a 60-slide PowerPoint deck full of bullet points to help you through the presentation. So um, yeah, the the presentation decks um, that complement a public speaking engagement, um, they are something that should be um, brief, uh, filled with images and graphics, complement what you're trying to say and can really enhance a speech, but it can really work to your detriment if, you, if you're using the typical um, text-heavy slides.
1: That's right, Jay. And not having that crutch um, of having the slides with all of the bullet points that you might end up reading, that almost forces the presenter to speak extemporaneously. And for most speakers, that's actually a good thing because it just comes across as more authentic and more engaging and people would much rather listen to somebody um, just convey expertise naturally as opposed to reading from prepared remarks. So doing it in this way that you suggested, you're not not gonna even be able to turn around and read bullet points. And again, if you truly are the thought leader, you have all of that expertise um, in that niche and you should be able to speak extemporaneously about those things. And then just the last thing to keep in mind, I think just a couple additional tips real quickly is one is keep those graphics simple to your point. You don't want them to be distracting. You don't want people to be watching something behind you and not paying attention to you. You just kind of want that that to serve as a, a companion or a backdrop. And think about maybe having some animated graphics too.
0: All right, Tom, let's move to our last issue here, uh, which is one that I think in the context of this situation I'll describe, many people aren't thinking in terms of thought leadership marketing, but it really might be the most important context in which to think like a thought leader and act like a thought leader. And that is the moment at which a prospective client is considering whether to hire you or not hire you. So, um, you know, we've done all this work, we've we've you know, honed our expertise, we've created thought leadership that's that's garnered the interest of those we're trying to serve and, and we finally get an opportunity uh, to submit a proposal to provide legal services and, and then what? Uh, how should we th- be thinking about the issue of thought leadership in the context of the pitch or the proposal?
1: Right. Well, the last thing you should do is just sort of drop the thought leadership ball at the one yard line, right? You've done all this work and as we profess it will, um, you know, You've, you, like you said, you've garnered interest, you've generated an opportunity, you get the to the point, I call it the point of impact, which is this is what you've been doing all of this work for in the first place is to have an opportunity to, to generate a piece of business. And then we get the opportunity and maybe the client asks for a proposal and we send over a Word document with bullet points and a price tag. And there's just no life to it. And again, like you said, w- when is it ever more important to act and be perceived as a thought leader Then, at that point of impact. So while we'll discuss a few potential options on how you can avoid that, the, the, the big takeaway is just avoid dropping that ball at the one-yard line when, when you've already earned the reputation or the trust as being a thought leader, like nail it home. And I think there's a lot of things you could do creatively. We've been talking throughout this episode about visual storytelling. And what I would advocate in a general sense is just to bake in some of those visuals in some of that visual thought leadership into the presentation. There's timelines that you can demonstrate. There's maybe infographics that can be incorporated. Maybe that distill the essence of the problem that the client has articulated to you so that not only it demonstrates that you understand it, but that you can spit it back to them in a way that's Um, digestible, understood, and it really demonstrates that you've been there before, you understand the client's problems, and you're, you're ready to present a solution that's going to be creative, impactful, and in doing so, you're going to stand out in a stack of proposals that probably look more like what I described earlier, which is, you know, doesn't look any that different from a legal brief, but with a price tag attached to it at the end
0: yeah and one of the you one thing to think about i mean ideally what you're trying to do through uh thought leadership marketing is avoid the proposal altogether to some extent certainly the request for proposal cattle call that that many of us uh despise having to engage in because it requires so much work as a a thought leader as as someone who's demonstrating their expertise um, through the content they create the idea is to avoid that process altogether. You wanna, you wanna be able to sort of win without having to pitch. Um, so so you know, in that circumstance, you still might have to prepare a proposal, but you, you shouldn't, you've already done most of the convincing through your thought leadership. At this point, the idea is just to close the deal. And oftentimes in that instance, the less you say, the better. So keep it visual, keep it short, make it impactful, make it interesting. It it projects a level of confidence. I think if you don't feel like you have to go on for thirty pages in a proposal reiterating you know everything that you've ever done, because ideally you know your prospective client is someone who has already been convinced that you're the expert. And they want to hire you, and they're not just they're not just sort of. Um, trying to weigh and, and choose on price based upon a bunch of undifferentiated lawyers. So um, you know that's that's sort of one of the benefits of doing all of this other work as it relates to thought leadership is the fact that when you do get to the point of you know an, an expression of interest by a client hiring you, your work's a lot easier and you can really just you know drive home and drive home the sale and and, and, and nail it through a, a visually interesting and, and brief and concise proposal at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. And consider another scenario too, because you're right. I think if you've done a good job of doing your thought leadership marketing all along, that you have probably already earned the trust of at least a key decision maker, the one who's reached out to you and afforded you the opportunity to present. But consider the people that maybe haven't been along for that journey in, but who also have influence in the decision-making process could be someone who's never met you. So in that, let me just paint a, a potential scenario. So, you know, one particular person is vetting potential solutions. She has a bias for you, Jay Harrington, let's say, because she's been reading your thought leadership. She thinks that you have the solutions, the expertise, the insights to solve the problem that the firm has. So she brings back your proposal with two others, say, because she's been told she has to get three bids. And the higher up decision maker asks her, well, who would you go with? And she says, well, I, you know, f- my preference, it would be Jay Harrington because X, Y, and C, And he, he's demonstrated the insights. I trust him. I've met with a few others. He just seems to have a better grasp of this. And that person might say, well, let's see the proposals. And at that point, the thought leadership that you're demonstrating in a proposal is maybe for an audience that hasn't already earned, or you, for whom you haven't already earned that trust. And now they're looking at your proposal of, amongst the two others, and they're already uh, sort of pre or prejudiced to want to choose you based on the person who just vouched for you. And now you're just sealing the deal, like you said. So don't um, miss an opportunity to when you've gotten that close and you've earned that much trust and you're that close to, to getting a new engagement, don't just fumble it away just because it's easier to have, you know, an assistant maybe type up some some Word document. That's what we're advocating for.
0: Yeah. No, that's a great point. And I think that's a probably a good place to wrap up, Tom. Um, so any parting thoughts?
1: Well, I just hope that uh, next week when listeners tune in, tune in, they'll hear two voices, uh, which means <laughs> I've repassed the audition. Um, yeah, no, yeah. you
0: you did you did great, Tom. I think yeah. everyone will welcome you back with open arms. And actually, I think we'll have three voices uh, next week because we're going to have I think our next two we have guests scheduled. Uh, so so we'll have uh, we'll be able to ask more questions and listen to someone else uh, share the thoughts. So that yep. should be good.
1: Looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, until next time, uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll uh, we'll come back next week for more. But uh, until next time, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to The Thought Leadership Project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit thethoughtleadershipproject.com.